Hi, Corey Olson here. The other day I had the opportunity to sit down with KMO, the host of the Sea Realm podcast. He had asked to do an interview with me for his podcast, but we got so caught up in talking about Tolkien, and in particular the Silmarillion, that we decided to break the session up into two halves. The first half I am posting here, as part of my series of Tolkien chats. The second half will be broadcast on KMO's Sea Realm podcast in a few days. We start off with a few questions that KMO had about the Silmarillion. There was Eru, the one, who in Arda is called... Iluvatar. So the British actor they have reading the, uh, the audiobooks as Aluvatar, or something yeah. silly like that. <laughs> yeah. And there are a couple places. Actually, he does an okay job most of the time. Mm-hmm. But there are a couple ones which he... Now, there I think he's using the default. Again, normally it's the second to last syllable. So Iluvatar right. would sort of sound right. But Tolkien puts the accents... In which are stress marks, so it's actually designed to be a pronunciation aid. So there's a there's an accent on the U in Iluvatar to tell mm-hmm. you that that's that's the stress because it's an exception to the rule. It's the you know the, the second instead of the third syllable that's stressed. But yeah, what's really neat? I mean, I I know your students have pointed it out that these words which have no etymological etymological relationship to English words that we use <laughs> sound like English words. Like Iluvatar sounds like somebody who brings light. Yes. Yes, yeah. uh, and and you know it's it's funny because I would I would like to think that he intended that as a kind of deliberate pun, you know, um, because certainly Iluvatar uh, <laughs> is associated with light, and he may well have been thinking that, but philologists often don't think of those things. It seems that is he is so. Um, focused on the etymology of the word and, and, and what it means that he would... I mean, I, you know, the joke with my students, of course, is Tyrion upon Tuna. And, and, <laughs> and I feel really pretty confident that, uh, that Tuna, he, he, it never even occurred to him. Yeah. You know, uh, he the, probably didn't uh, eat tuna. a lot of Tuna. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, have I told you my, uh, the, the C.S. Lewis story that I, that I cite to, to back up my theory about his not being aware of that? Uh, it might be in a podcast, but this it is our first be. meeting. So. Yeah, so, well, it's, it's the... Um, uh, the scene from Paralandra, uh, C.S. Lewis's, uh, the second novel in C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. And the, the protagonist of the Space Trilogy, Ransom, uh, Elwyn Ransom, is based on Tolkien. He's a Cambridge philologist. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, um, and there's this moment in Paralandra where his last name is Ransom, as I say. And um, there's, this, there's this scene where basically uh, he's speaking to a voice, which essentially makes a pun on his name, Ransom. And, um, and Ransom is described as sort of realizing for the first time, oh, yeah, my last name is Ransom. Like, because, you know, he himself had always thought of only the etymology of it and knew exactly right. where it came from. And so it had never even occurred to him that, Hold that, the phone. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that the name actually meant something in modern English. Uh, so, I mean, and it just Lewis kind of depicting that of the character based on Tolkien. I sort of, it's hard for me to imagine that I, 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 I sort of, See it kind of a gentle teasing there, I think, and I would imagine that Tolkien did that kind of thing. So <laughs> you did have that in a podcast, I yeah. I think that. I think I think I did mention that, but anyway, it's uh, it's it's um, it's definitely fun. But it, Iluvatar, yeah, I, 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 the puncher works whether he yeah. meant it or not. <laughs> well, I've been listening to and enjoying the Tolkien Professor podcast. Um, I think since oh, two thousand and nine. August or September, somewhere in there. 
it inspired me to go and check The Hobbit out at the library. I read The Hobbit, and then I read it aloud to my kids. Wonderful. So yeah, The Hobbit's very fresh in my brain. And your, um, your very inspiring lectures prompted me to get this, The Silmarillion, <laughs> which I had tried to read a while back, I think in my teens, didn't get through it, and um, that's my bookmark. <laughs> hey, that's, that's good. You know, any bookmark in The Silmarillion, any honest bookmark that is past the first 20 pages, you've, you've done well. You know, most people, by 20 pages, are done with it if they're not going to make it, so, so yes. yeah. And for those who don't know, the Silmarillion is basically the uh, the folklore of the elves collected by Bilbo and Rivendell, and it's it's hard going because there's no central narrative, there is no central accessible character like you have in the Lord of the Rings. There are no hobbits yeah. to frame it and to put all these uh, larger than life characters in a, a proper frame. And you've been giving some advice to your students and also to me about getting through it because it is rewarding. Yeah. Well, I mean, I definitely, I I sort of feel like the more people I can get to actually get through the Silmarillion, (laughs) the happy, the more satisfied I am with my job. You know, I feel like my work is done if I've done that. But um, yeah, and the two main things that I always say to people about the Silmarillion is, first of all, the, the number one problem is all the names. I mean, Tolkien just loves names. There are names all over the place. And not only are there, you know, hundreds and hundreds of characters and places and small localities and, and things which have names, but they'll all have multiple names, too. And, and not not even just names in multiple languages, as we sometimes see in The Lord of the Rings, where, for instance, you know, the, we, we, we learn the names of the three mountains above Moria in the languages of elves, dwarves, and men. But um, I'm, I'm not even talking about that kind of, but just <laughs> people, like, their names change, or they're, you know, some people call them this, and some people call them that, which mean different things. And, um, and so just trying to keep track of all the names is something which is really bewildering uh, to a lot of people. Um, it was funny, uh, s- uh, was, someone was asking me about uh, George R. R. Martin's fantasy series uh, recently, and if I read it and if I liked it, and I, mm. and I said, yeah, I mean, I think it's fine. It's, I haven't read it. What is it? Yeah, it's not my favorite. Um, uh, Song of Ice and Fire, it's, a, it's this epic, hugely <laughs> epic fantasy series, um, which is uh, still ongoing and much delayed, actually, to, uh, to the irritation of many. But, uh, but anyway, that one one of the objections that people have is like, oh, you know, well, Martin is good, but there's so many names, and and it was funny, you know, coming from Tolkien and being used to the Silmarillion. When I read Martin, it didn't even strike me. I was like, I never even would have occurred to me that there were a lot of names in this book, uh, because I mean, all the characters by and large only have one name. I mean, that's not hard. How easy is that? Exactly. But uh, but anyway, so the, my main advice is just don't try to keep track of all the names. Don't try to memorize them all. Don't try to. You don't need to know them all. Um, you know, it's it's perfectly okay. The book isn't a novel. You know, you're not supposed to be. It's not like a core of central characters that you're following from one end to the next. It's a collection of stories, a collection of legends from the ancient days. So it's okay to take each legend episodically. Of course, they you know they do build on things that happened previously and everything. So um, you know, it's good to have some sense of what's going on. But just pay attention to the stories. Don't try to whatever you do. Don't try to make a family tree. Don't try. <laughs> don't try to write stuff out because there's just too much to try to keep track of. It's like um, as I've mentioned to you before, it's like reading the Old Testament for the first time and, you know, not going on until you've, like, memorized every genealogy. I mean, you're just, you're not going to get out of chapter five if you do that. So uh, just, 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 just let it roll and keep going. And the stories will really then begin to grip you and draw you in. And then once you read the stories and reread the stories, you're able to, you know, as time goes on, 
familiarize yourself more and more and um, you know and then down the road you'll reach the point where you'll be able to you know remember the difference between Finrod and Fingen and, and all of those things but <laughs> you don't really need to worry about that too much the first time the second piece of advice that I have is read it aloud if possible I know the names are a stumbling block and you can skip over them if, if but the the prose style is so different from the Lord of the Rings and from uh, from The Hobbit. I say it's totally different from the Lord of the Rings. Not all of the Lord of the Rings. There are moments in the Lord of the Rings where his prose style sort of ascends up to a, 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 a place which is near where he's at at the Silmarillion all the time. Um, you know, I think of some moments in the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, for instance. Um, there are a couple moments. Think even of the, uh, the scene when Eowyn and Aragorn... Um, say goodbye when he leaves her behind to go into the paths of the dead and she's begging to be taken along. Um, there's a moment there where he, 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 he jumps up to high style. Um, you know, and, and she looked as one who likes not that which is said. You know, I mean, he, he, he gets very sort of, uh, you know, uh, formal. And it's, it's clear these are the moments which are sort of legendary moments. You know, the, the, the things, you know, these are the bits that are going to be retold and retold. And, and, uh, and those are... Those are the times when he will he will uh, match that stylistically. Well, that's the register the Silmarillion lives in all the time. It's yes. a more archaic, and it's a it's a it's a it's designed to sound like ancient legend. You know, it's designed to sound like something that was written thousands of years ago. Um, and he does a really good job with that. The the prose, when you get used to it, is really quite beautiful. I mean, I think the Silmarillion not only is genuinely my favorite book by Tolkien, but uh, but I think contains some of his best and most powerful writing. I mean, it is remarkable what he does in the Silmarillion, but... Would you care to read a passage? Sure. Sure, let's see. So what are we going to hear? I'm going to read from the uh, the Einulindale, that is the creation story. I do love the Einulindale. That I've read again and again. I've read yeah. it aloud to other people. That's, oh, it is... That it one is, has fallen into place for me. Yes, yes. Um, let's see. So uh, we have... For those of you who don't know the Silmarillion, um, at the beginning of at the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, Iluvatar, uh, the one who is basically God, comes to the Ainur, who are basically angelic beings that he has created, um, and he declares to them a mighty theme that he wants them to sing. Um, now, the interesting thing is that, of course, although he, he although he declares this theme to them um, that he wants them to do they are supposed to adorn it themselves. So they're all improving, basically, in harmony on this theme. Uh, but there is the greatest of the Ainur, whose name is Melkor, um, who, uh, into whose heart it came to interweave matters of his own imagining that were not in accord with the theme of Iluvatar. And so he uh, begins to conceive thoughts of his own that are unlike his brethren. Now some of these thoughts he wove into his music, and straightway discord arose about him, and many that sang nigh him grew despondent, and their thought was disturbed, and their music faltered, and some began to attune their music to his rather than to the thought which they had at first. Then the discord of Melkor spread ever wider, and the melodies which had been heard before foundered in a sea of turbulent sound. But Iluvatar sat and hearkened, until it seemed that about his throne there was a raging storm, as of dark waters that made war one upon another in an endless wrath that would not be assuaged. Then Iluvatar arose, and the Ainur perceived that he smiled, and he lifted up his left hand, and a new theme began amid the storm, like and yet unlike to the former theme, and it gathered power and had new beauty. 
But the discord of Melkor rose in uproar and contended with it, and again there was a war of sound more violent than before, until many of the Ainur were dismayed and sang no longer, and Melkor had the mastery. Then Iluvatar arose, and the Ainur perceived that his countenance was stern, and he lifted up his right hand, and behold, a third theme grew amid the confusion, and it was unlike the others, for it seemed at first soft and sweet, a mere rippling of gentle sounds and delicate melodies, but it could not be quenched, and it took to itself power and profundity. And it seemed at last that there were two musics progressing at one time before the seat of Iluvatar, and they were utterly at variance. The one was deep and wide and beautiful, but slow and blended with an immeasurable sorrow, from which its beauty chiefly came. The other had now achieved a unity of its own, but it was loud and vain and endlessly repeated, and it had little harmony, but rather a clamorous unison, as of many trumpets braying upon a few notes. And it essayed to drown the other music by the violence of its voice, but it seemed that its most triumphant notes were taken by the other and woven into its own solemn pattern. In the midst of this strife, whereat the halls of Iluvatar shook, and a tremor ran out into the silences yet unmoved, Iluvatar arose a third time, and his face was terrible to behold. Then he raised up both his hands, and in one chord, deeper than the abyss, higher than the firmament, piercing as the light of the eye of Iluvatar, the music ceased. I'm sure I'm not the only one who knows quite a bit about the Silmarillion from listening to your podcast. <laughs> um, for example, I know that Iluvatar is God, yeah, and that the next set of beings down the hierarchy of being from Iluvatar are the sort of uh, aspects of his mind which each conform or they comprise an individual being, and these are the the Ainur, the Ainur. Uh, which are called. Mm-hmm. Of course, their names change. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> Originally, the whole choir of beings are called the Ainur, and that's sort of the collective name. When uh, some of them choose to enter into the world after it's created and sort of become the stewards and caretakers of the world, um, and they become the they they are called the Valar. Their name is changed to, to the Valar when they when they come down. So for the rest of the Silmarillion, it's mostly the Valar that that people are are, are sort of dealing with. Um, but yes, yes, the the Ainur is the the name of the group, mm-hmm. and. So Iluvatar proposes the theme. Mm-hmm. You all riff on this theme. I'm going to listen and just kick back and enjoy. Um, and then Melkor, who is the greatest, is he? Is he? I know Tolkien doesn't like uh, you know one for one correspondence, but uh, is is Melkor Satan? He is basically the Lucifer figure. I mean, yeah. the parallel is so close that no protestations could possibly <laughs> deny it. I mean, he is the greatest of the of the angelic forces, and he's the one who falls and draws other with him. And um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, I mean, there, there is no other Satan. There, there is no other Satan figure. It's not to say that you know uh, Melkor is Satan. That's the kind of language that Tolkien resists, and not necessarily because he's resisting the, the signification so much, but that it. It's oversimplifying. Like he doesn't want you to be thinking about Satan, like taking what you know about Satan and applying it to Melkor, right. because that's not. It, he's a different character. Is he parallel to Satan? No question. I mean, yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Even worse than applying what you know about Satan to Melkor would be applying what you think you know about Satan. Right. To exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's um, the the main thing that Tolkien disliked. You know, with his objections to allegory and his objections to you know, the biography of the author and everything else, the main thing is he just, he wants people to read the stories on their own ground and to just, you know, to, to not to just be kind of importing a whole bunch of other stuff 
to the stories and using that as a way to kind of reform the stories or reimagine it, but just to, 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 to see what's there. So below the Ainur Kam Valar are other beings. Who are they? Well, um, basically, there are only two, roughly, two mm. categories of being that it sets out. You've got the Ainur and you've got the children of Iluvatar, who are elves and men. Um, dwarves come along later. They're kind of like the stepchildren of Iluvatar. But isn't there a level between those two, the well, Maya? The Maya are Ainur. Technically, mm-hmm. um, so of the of the spirits who came into the world, um, there is basically a hierarchy among them. Not all of the Ainur are equally powerful or, or sort of equally well. Because they equally significant, that sounds <laughs> unnecessarily insulting. But <laughs> but anyway, they're not all they're not all of the same magnitude. Um, and so when they come down into the world, this doesn't seem to be the We don't get any sense of clear, like, division or classification uh, pre-descent into Arda, which Arda is the name for the world as a whole, um, before their descent into Arda. Um, th- there's no sense of classification, but the, I- the Ainur who descend, some of them are the Valar and some of them are the Maiar. Mm-hmm. So, and both of those words are plural. Yes, for... yes. Uh, the singular, you drop the R. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so an Ainu is singular, a Maya is singular, and a Vala is singular. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so yeah, so the Mayar and the and the Valar are become sort of the two classifications. You've got the great ones of the spirits, and they're the Valar, and then you've got all the rest of them, which are sort of collectively called called the Mayar. And so that includes um, both some sort of lesser, but still often very Powerful spirits like uh, like Ose and Uinin, for instance, who are the two uh, the two chief Maiar who work under Olmo, who's the Valar who primarily oversees um, water and the seas. And Ose and Uinin are in char- they're in charge of you know tides and coastal waters. They're um, they are the ones even more than Olmo that 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 mariners are kind of concerned with because they're the one who actually. Sort of deal with the surface of the water. Yeah, Ulmo is the CEO of the ocean. You're never going to encounter him. Yeah, very you rarely. You need to get in good with the customer service folks. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> very rarely are you going to encounter Ulmo, yeah. yeah. Uh, certainly not as a sailor. So, yeah, it's it's Ulmo. And, and it's, you know, it's not I'm, just that I'm sure Ulmo. Tolkien would hate my metaphor just now. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yes. A very orcish metaphor. I think he, uh, he yeah, he, he, would, he often, uh, in his letters, talks about, you know, corporate people and, and military people as orcs. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, it was, Olmo is made, so he's the caretaker of, of the seas and all the water, but of course this is because that was the part of the music that he sang at first. Water and the sound of water comes from Olmo's uh, you know, strand of the great music. He was the one who conceived of water. And so that's why he's, it's not just that, you know, this is, this is uh, unlike, for instance, this is an important difference between uh, Tolkien's mythology here and, say, Greek mythology. Sometimes people want to, often people will, will want to make comparisons and say, okay, the, you know, the, the head of the Valar is Manway, who is over the sky and the clouds, and then you've got, you know, so he's obviously the Zeus figure, and then you've got the Poseidon figure in, in Olmo. But, um, and Mandos, I guess, would be the closest parallel to Hades, but... Um, but there's a huge difference, which is that in Greek mythology, 
those three, those three brothers, Zeus and, and, and Hades and Poseidon, um, have their realms determined by lot. I mean, they cast lots and one of them gets the sky and one of them gets the sea and one of them gets uh, the booby prize and, <laughs> and is down in the underworld. Um, but uh, as, you know, in the Iliad, Poseidon is quick to remind when he's doing something that Zeus doesn't want him to do in the Iliad and Zeus sends a messenger down to yell at him and Poseidon reminds him, is like, hey, but, you know, if not for the fact that, like, you know, the lots could have gone off otherwise and then I would have been king, so don't you boss me around, brother. <laughs> um, and then he does end up actually letting himself be bossed around. But, uh, but anyway, the point is that there's no intrinsic connection between the gods, whereas in Tolkien's there absolutely is. It doesn't work like that at all. It's not just that, you know, the Valar come down and they're like, all right, well, teamwork, let's split this up and we'll all do... They came down because they love the earth, because they love the music that they sang, and those aspects of the earth are the fruit of their own music, the fruit of their own thought. Not just, I mean, Iluvatar creates through them, and not just through them as instruments like they're a piano he's playing on, but they're, they're improv. Um, and uh, what Tolkien does in the Ainu Windaway um, with uh, basically predestination and free will is remarkable. It's one of the most uh, it's one of the most profound literary treatments of the subject that I know of. Um, both of them. Are, it, the world is created just as Iluvatar wanted it. He is in control the whole time, and yet it is also. At the same time, the free choice of the Ainur, which has contributed to what has been made, but yet nothing is made that he doesn't want made. So it's uh, it's it's that's pretty remarkable. But as I say, the thing to remember is that those Valar are they are overseeing their own realm, something that is their own realm, and something something which is really their own heart, their own passion, their own uh, a reflection of their own mind um, in ways which is just not true of uh, of most other pantheons. Well, in the Greek pantheon, there's no Iluvatar. Right, <clears throat> right. At least not, uh, yeah, no, exactly. There's, there's, uh, this, is, this is, of course, the objection Plato had to it. He wanted an Iluvatar uh, and to get rid of the rest. But, um, but yeah, yeah, no, th- th- there isn't. And this is, and it's not just, you have to look at things like that that is the relationship between the Valar and the world um, and the way that, that, char- that the character of that relationship is different from something like Greek mythology in order to really see. I mean, there are some people who are tempted to say things like, well, see, Tolkien has just kind of Christianized, you know, a, a pagan mythology like that. He's made a mythology, you know, a, a pantheon, which is basically like a pagan pantheon, but, you know, then we just sort of slap a monotheistic god on top and we're good, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, and, and, you know, this is not really how it works at all. I mean, the difference is are really profound. Um, but, uh, but you really... And, and so in some ways, the similarities to pagan, uh, to pagan pantheons are more superficial um, than, than the Christianization is. The, it's the... It's the uh, I don't even like the word Christianized. And, and part of that also is sort of a professional objection to People use that of the Middle Ages all the time, and I think that people vastly misunderstand the relationship between medieval Christendom and uh, pagan tradition and, and, you know, the Greco-Roman past. Um, and this conversation can go anywhere, but I'm going to put up a roadblock and say, we're not going down Beowulf. <laughs> okay, that's all right. We don't have to talk about Beowulf. <laughs> the Beowulf is a Christian poet, but I yes. won't talk about that. Uh, yeah, no, 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 no. Um, but again, and I, I just to, 
expand on that one for for one minute because I do think that it, it it is important and relevant to Tolkien. One mistake that people often make about medieval Christian treatment of pagan ideas is that they're basically just trying to kind of clean it up and whitewash it and like let's let's kind of incorporate this because people like this so we'll kind of bring this in and then we can sort of bring more people or make keep people happy but you know still keep it sort of officially Christian. The reason that they kept these things around is because of the profound respect that they had for the pagans. I mean, in the Middle Ages, they believed quite firmly that the world was in decline, that people are getting are getting dumber and less wise every generation, um, which means that people like Plato and Aristotle and Virgil and Ovid must be just way smarter, way wiser than we are. So you don't just dump it, even when there are things that they say which appears plainly to contradict the Bible, what the medievals did was like, well, they must know what they're talking about. I mean, these wise these wise pagans must have known what they were talking about. Now, they didn't have revelation, so they don't know the whole picture themselves. But clearly, there's something in what they're saying. This is why um, the medieval cosmos is so similar, and so, you know, it still retains so much of the old pagan ideas. Like, the, you know, how we take the pagan gods and we... we uh, you know, in the Middle Ages, understand them as planetary intelligences. They believed um, perfectly orthodox uh, Christians in the Middle Ages believed in a literal spirit in the planet Venus, which had an effect on the world, which looked actually quite similar to the kind of effects that the pagan Venus often had. Um, and uh, they, and they did this because, again, they, they were convinced. Surely, these guys must have known what they were talking about. That there's something really to this. Now we can contextualize it. We, we, we medieval Christians can contextualize because now we have the benefit of this revelation that you know they didn't have. So with the help of that, we can now put it in a bigger picture and understand it a little bit more fully. But, you know, they were not in the business of just chucking stuff out because they had too much respect for it. So, um, and Tolkien had a very similar kind of view. Not, not, I mean, it's not that he was convinced of the same thing as far as the um, the decline of um, of knowledge and wisdom and things like that necessarily, but he had a tremendous respect uh, for pagan mythologies, and he believed there was real wisdom and there was real truth in those, and that you know, at, in no way did a belief in Christianity require you to say, because I believe Christianity is true, therefore everything ever said by any other religion or tradition must be 100% false. Um, that there was truth in myth. Uh, I mean, that the central importance of myth was really important to him. And so when he makes myth, which is what he's doing here, um, he is, I mean, there are good reasons why his, his myth sounds like a pagan myth in some ways, and his pantheon looks like a pagan pantheon in some ways, because, uh, not because he's kind of secretly, you know, like being ostensibly Christian while secretly like going back to pagan stuff, but rather because he believed that those pagan pantheons and mythologies themselves also pointed to a truth which was perfectly in harmony uh, with with the truth revealed in the Bible. So, I mean, that, that was basically the world that Tolkien lived in, and, and you can see that in the mythology that he writes. I'm, I'm tempted to, uh, to talk about this book by Walter Crutenton called Lost Star of Myth and Time, because I saw uh, a very real connection, seemingly, in what you were saying just now about how in medieval Christendom, 
the Christians would look at the achievements of the pagans that came before them and think, wow, that is something that we are not going to attain. Yeah. Um, and Crutenton's idea is that the procession of the equinoxes is uh, an effect of our star, soul, being in uh, a binary star system and, and circulating, circling around a central point of gravity with another star that we don't see. And that as we approach this other star, it has an effect on human consciousness and it elevates it. And we get grand civilizations and things, you know, civilizations that could build pyramids and such. And then as we're moving away, um, then consciousness is degrading. And uh, that the, the Egyptian, not the Egyptian, but the, um, the Indian yugas and the, the Dark Ages and the, the times in our history, in Western history, which we think of as enlightened periods, correspond to these phases, and it could well be that in the Middle Ages, consciousness was in fact on the downhill slide, and that people could see it, and that it was obvious because look at what the ancients could do that we can't do. So uh, that that's a dangerous segue. <laughs> we'll just leave <laughs> off there. Uh, you mentioned an author who'd written a, an epic fantasy series that I haven't read. I haven't read any fantasy really, um, other than Tolkien. I've read a lot of science fiction. Mm-hmm. There's a science fiction author named Michael Swanwick. Are you familiar with him? I'm not. He wrote a book called The Iron Dragon's Daughter. And then the sequel is The Dragons of Babel. And basically it's, uh, it's where the modern world and fairy meet. And you have you know, elves and trolls and dwarves, but you also have television and motorcycles. And, and this dragon, who is a central character... And the Iron Dragon's daughter is basically a bomber in a war. You know, he, he flies over the enemy and he drops bombs. But, and he's built by dwarves in a factory, but he's also a living being. And um, for some reason, he gets it into his mind to escape. And he, uh, he inducts this young girl who's basically an indentured servant in this factory. And they escape together. And she is the Iron Dragon's daughter. And um, it's described... And Swenwick is a, a Tolkien aficionado scholar... Uh, but his work is described as the anti-Tolkien because the elves, while they are um, grand and, and sophisticated, they're also really callous and just evil and you know abusive, which um, until I read the Silmarillion, I, I would have agreed, yeah, that's the anti the anti-Tolkien, but no, uh, Feanor is <laughs> yeah, pretty I mean, awful. Yeah. It's one thing we get in the Silmarillion, which we don't really see anywhere else, is elves going bad. Mm-hmm. Um, elves can fall, do fall, and get in Fanor. Um, though, of course, Fanor is himself is tragic. I mean, the, the, there's this one, that wonderful moment where uh, the Valar, when Fanor rebels, they weep um, over the darkening of Valinor, I mean, or the, the huge tragedy that just happened and the destruction of the trees. Um, but they weep just as much over the marring of Fanor. And think about you know the the how what he could have done how he could have been you know um, because he was the most powerful the most gifted of all of the children of Iluvatar the greatest child of Iluvatar ever made much like Melkor yeah exactly yeah. and goes the same way <laughs> and there's kind of a trend with that uh, actually and this is you know something which becomes. Um, just sort of one small example, and there are hundreds of examples of ways in which uh, your reading of The Lord of the Rings is really enriched by knowing the Silmarillion. In the Silmarillion, you do see that pattern. Those who are really great, those who are really mighty, 
do have a really strong temptation to fall and do sometimes go bad. And so then when you come to the Lord of the Rings and you see, you hear Elrond, for instance, saying, it seems like this job is meant to be done by the small instead of the great. Uh, You can really sort of see this is like Iluvatar's answer, basically, to, you know, the mighty who are falling to say, no, 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 look, the way that I want things, the way things are supposed to go is like this. The humble are elevated. uh, And it's, it's through the small that these great things are done. Um, and it's uh, it, it just that all really fits together really well. Um, Are you familiar with David Brin? No, I don't know David. David Brin, Brin is a science fiction author. Again, okay. uh, he's been fairly critical of the the adulation that the masses are giving to Tolkien, because to him Tolkien represents a sort of political regression. You know, people are are clamoring for a king. You know, we, we want our Caesar, and uh, the, the Tea Party folks may well, you know, find their Caesar and thrust him up and expect him to act like a Caesar is supposed to, you know, and crush the opposition and, and, and dictate. And uh, I was reading just last night in the Silmarillion, and I don't remember the characters' names, but um, the, uh, the king who is married to one of the Valar. Yes. Uh, one of the Noldor. Is his name. Fingold. Yeah. One of the Noldor who had to walk up through, you know, the icy north to get around, yeah. uh, shows up and, and Thingol has just learned of the kin slaying and the burning yes. of the ships and yes. he's mad. Yes. And he's he's mad at who's the visitor? Well, it's uh, the sons of Finarfin who are there who are um Finarfin is a close kin of Thingol. Yeah. Well, we don't have to go through the whole genealogy. See, I say to resist <laughs> the genealogies. Anyway, they're kinsmen of his. Yes. Um, the Noldor, who are this group of elves who decided to leave Valar, which is the Undying Lands, came back to Middle-earth, and they came in two groups. One, led by Feanor, who is totally gone bad, yes. goes and kills some other elves, takes their fine ships, sails across to Middle-earth, and then burns the ships. Abandoning his kinsmen <laughs> yeah. on the other side, yeah. Who then take this really awful, perilous, treacherous course up north and around, and... <clears throat> When Thingol finds out about that, he's so mad. He says, the language of the elves who went to Valinar will not be spoken here, period. That's right. Which is classical political repression of a minority group, which is just evil in my book. And he's not a bad character, but he's done something that bad kings and bad governments do throughout history and continue to do today, like in Turkey. Although, one major difference there is that the the group whose language is being suppressed, they're numerically a minority, but they're the most powerful people on the whole continent. <laughs> so, I mean, they are the people who are come over and have become essentially overlords everywhere except in Doriath, where Thingol is ruling, mm-hmm. um, and a couple cities down by the coast. Um, so they're basically running the place. So it is an act more of defiance. I mean, it would be... Uh, I'm hesitant to draw a modern political parallel. Um, sort of thinking of the Cold War, but of course it's just not quite right. But anyway, though the parallel is deeply awkward, I'll still do it. It's more like, um, you know, if if Reagan had responded to Khrushchev by saying... And, you know, the Russian language shall never more be spoken again in my ears. And anyone who speaks the Russian language shall be held a traitor. Um, that is an act of aggression sort of horizontally rather than vertically down. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because he's definitely not oppressing the Noldor because the Noldor are in charge and they're in charge everywhere and they are far more numerous and more powerful than he in his own kingdom. Um, but it's, it is a, it is a, and the, the Noldor do it for the sake of keeping peace. They only speak their own language among themselves. Um, and you know, from that day on, <laughs> Sindarin is the language that's spoken in, in, in Beleriand. Cause you know, he, uh, he, Thingol says, yeah, anyone who speaks, uh, the language, Quenya, the, the language of Valinor will be held to be slayers of kin, unrepentant, you know, <laughs> you're basically owning the kin slaying if you speak this language. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, it, it's a, so I, that I don't think is, is an evil act itself necessarily. Again, it's a defiant act on mm-hmm. Thingol's part and he's, a, it's part of the kind of complicated political struggle between him and the, well, I will say complicated political relationship between him and the Noldor um, in Beleriand. Because he's the only real king when they get back. He's the only, he, he is the primary power. Um, but of course, when they return, they find him awkwardly besieged by the orcs who have overrun the whole rest of the country. Um, which is what some of the Noldor say in response when they hear about his decree. Um, you know, they say, um, look, he should be grateful he has the Noldor for his neighbors and not the orcs that we found here. <laughs> right. um, so he can shut up. But they actually do, you know, stop speaking Quenya in public because they don't want to, uh, they don't, they, they don't want to cause trouble. And also because they know that they're guilty. Like they, the kinslaying weighs on them. The kinslaying weighs on them. I mean, they, 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 they don't like to think about the kinslaying. like to think about the kinslaying because um, but most of the rest of them that have come over are not really, some of Fanor's sons are also crazy, but not, uh, not, not all of them. And many of them are deeply repentant of, of the kinslaying and yet are still burdened by it. So that's sort of another reason why they would go along with it. Um, but yeah, the, the, the questions of power, political power, as it's depicted in Tolkien, um, is something which is hard for a lot of modern readers. Um, You'd think the elves would be elevated. So, you know, perhaps they would be democratic or perhaps anarcho-syndicalists or something. But no, no, they're they're kings. They rule in succession. Although it's weird to have, uh, you know, rule by by lineal descent with immortal beings. The only way the king's ever going to check out is uh, in battle, pretty much, or by betrayal. Which doesn't happen that often. I mean, in the whole First Age, which lasts thousands of years there are four kings. if you're first in line to the throne find a hobby <laughs> oh yeah well and and that's of course the point is that uh it it's not in any way their society isn't run by succession i mean there's no anxiety of succession mm-hmm. among the elves as there is among humans because you know whenever there's a mortal king like time is ticking and we've got to figure out we've got to make sure we have a plan for what's going to happen when he dies and of course uh the elves that's a little less pressing <laughs> For them, um, but yeah, I mean, one thing that's one thing that is pretty clear um, is that in Tolkien's mind, democracy is not necessarily enlightened. Um, and you know, again, it, Plato didn't think so either. Oh well, Plato's a fascist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, I think it was William Churchill who said that yes, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others that have been tried. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean. And it, it's one of the things that he 
is really envisioning is not just, if you think about the political structures, especially the monarchies in Tolkien, just as what a modern monarchy is or would be. I mean, as you said, if we, you know, if, if a faction of Americans rose up and crowned a king of America, what that would look like. That's not at all what Tolkien is envisioning um, in any way. And you have to go back to, you have to see the whole picture of not only who the king is and what the king does, but how the people respond and how they live and what they and what their own attitudes is towards it. I mean, it's clear that he is envisioning a completely different society ground up from ours um, and not just trying to impose that political system upon upon our world. You do get, you know, I think in some ways Tolkien's ideal of government, his one of his main convictions about government was... Uh, was he was very anti big government. He was anti medium sized government. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the Shire is a pretty good indication. Um, uh, it's you know it is not monarchical. There is a thane of the Shire, but it's a title that they barely even talk about anymore. And he doesn't There's wield no any power. Standing army of hobbits. There's no national guard that the thane can direct here and right. there. And yeah. absolutely not. There's no military. There's not even any police except, you know, the, 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 the bounders, you know, people who, like, try to keep, you know, wild animals from, from, from coming through or, or also, as he says, help to capture, you know, like, to, he implies that you know, one of their jobs is helping to recapture livestock that has strayed and stuff. I mean, you know, they don't, there's, the, there's not a lot of law enforcement that happens in the Shire that's needed in the Shire. Um, there's a mayor, you know, who is technically the, the sort of ruler, governor of the Shire, but... All he does is preside at parties. I mean, he doesn't really do very much. Um, in a lot of ways, Tolkien's ideal government is people minding their own homesteads and and government not interfering. But but then you have kings, yeah, and you have the relationship between the people and the kings. And here, this is part of the epic tradition, you know. And there is there is an idea behind this which has nothing to do with practical modern politics. You know, there is an idea, the idea of the return of the king and the relation, the, 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 what we can see that it means to the people of Gondor to have the king restored to the throne. What we can see that it means to the people of Rohan to have the king riding forth to battle instead of sitting back in his throne room decrepitly. That is a bigger epic idea, which again, it doesn't have anything to do with modern politics, I think, in Tolkien's mind. I mean, that doesn't amount to, like, kings are awesome and, like, all governments <laughs> should be monarchies. Um, rather, what he's doing is he is exploring this this ancient and, and really, it's a very Anglo-Saxon idea of the loving and really intimate uh, and in a deep way, symbiotic relationship between the king and the people and the king and the land. Um, and that that's when a land is whole, a land is healthy, when it has a king like that, who has to be a good king, too. I mean, a, ba a bad king poisons the country. And as we see, you know, bad kings uh, leading nations in battle. I mean, look at Numenor, what happens in Numenor. Uh, you know, their kings go bad and the whole place goes. Um, 
or with Theoden is the king is decrepit, so is the, yeah, the land. Yeah, exactly, country. exactly. Yeah, so, um, so, you know, I mean, that's it's it's symbiotic and sort of yeah, literally symbiotic. It goes it goes both ways, but um, but yeah, I, I to 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 just take from that. I mean, when you read his his letters when he's actually talking about his own political views, he sounds increasingly like an anarchist as, as, as time goes on uh, by the end of his life. Um, he is very resistant um, to governments and to bureaucracy and to, um, and to war, and he has a deep distrust for political leaders and thinks that they should just, like, st- stop minding people's business for them and, you know... the. So I mean, it's it, it, he, he comes close to, to to anarchism by the end of his life, in his private views, in his in his private expressions, um, but in his books, he's not going to say that anarchism is the ideal because it's not, um, and it's not it's not part of that legend that he's telling anyway. I mean, again, the closest that you get to like the anarchist ideal is the Shire, but of course, that's premised upon. A place where the people are all really good. I mean, people don't commit crimes generally in the Shire. Yeah. I mean, you know, Frodo makes that outrageous claim that there's never been a deliberate murder ever in the history of the Shire, in the recorded history of the Shire, um, which is a doubtful claim. Tolkien told a story at one point about there was anyway <laughs> death under mysterious circumstances. But 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 anyway, I mean, still. Well, the, Smeagol seems like a variety of Hobbit, and he obviously committed murder. But it was a huge deal. Yeah, I mean that, that was that was the thing. Is I mean it's it's uh, like you can tell like what a big deal the ring was because he murdered you know Daigle. So I mean that's that was that was that was really bad. <laughs> that, was, that was a very big deal. Um, but but yeah. So I mean so even that you can't even say oh he really would like everything to be like the Shire. Well maybe he would like things to be like the Shire. But he knew full well that if you were to institute the Shire governments in England. It wouldn't look like the Shire, <laughs> you know. So again, I don't think that uh, I think it's dangerous to be looking at the political systems that he describes in his books and really be kind of uh, just projecting them onto contemporary situations, as he w- as he wouldn't have done that in any kind of a direct way. That's all for the first session. Check out the Sea Realm podcast to hear the second half of our conversation, in which we discuss the dangers of technological advance in the modern age. As always, thanks for listening, and Godspeed.